when you get to this time of the year in the green Sundays, they sort of thematically are, are very similar, but writing sermons each week on these readings can get to be like sweating bullets. <laughs> so what I did today is I decided, of course, which I often do to preach on all three readings, and once again say that the uh, the Green Sundays are about the cost of discipleship, how we understand our relationship to God, what are the ways, means, and costs of Christian discipleship. And uh, these readings are about all of that. Uh, the reading from Jeremiah raises the question, uh, how do we think about God's future activity in our lives and also in the lives of the community of faith we call the church and in the wider society? And how in the midst of dire circumstances and difficulties, which in Jeremiah's case he predicted as a prophet, uh, he now is today for a change, being hopeful. How do we understand the right use of riches? In 1 Timothy we have a discussion of what it means to be godly and what is suggested about being godly with regard to uh, um, being content or not. And in the Gospel, we have the story of Dives and Lazarus. Dives is not mentioned by name in the Gospel. Dives in Latin means rich man. So what this means uh, in today, the NRSV translates it as a rich man. But uh, Dives was his name, or, you know, and, and that's the story, see, rich man, da-da. So um, what is the relationship between behavior now and behavior in the future is one of the questions. But the other one is that uh, what happens when we don't listen and uh, what does our power of denial tell us about uh, the good it would do to have God tell you the score in advance? Because it's about that too. So those are sort of the themes. Let's take Jeremiah. In 587 BCE, King Nebuchadnezzar besieged Jerusalem. And Jerusalem fell, and he took the inhabitants of Jerusalem and from the nearby area away in captivity to Babylon. This is an interesting footnote. A lot of the uh, biblical witness, the Hebrew Bible, was written during the Babylonian captivity, <coughs> or some of it. Uh, certainly uh, a lot or most of the Pentateuch, Genesis through um, Numbers. And they get carted away. So in 588 AD, a year before, um, you remember BC, we're going backwards now, 588, 589. Uh, Jeremiah hears God say to him, I want you to go to your hometown, Anathoth, where he was born, it's nearby Jerusalem, and I want you to buy a piece of property. So he goes and he buys the piece of property, and then the reading that you heard read was an elaborate uh, going into all the details about how he did it. The contract, the form of the contract, how many copies he made of the contract, 
he was to put one of them in a jar and keep it for posterity, and that when we came back from the exile, we would now have this property. Well, he, he did this because he believed that God, through him in a symbolic way, one of the <coughs> gestures that the prophets of Israel use all the time to say, there's a future for these people. <coughs> these are God's people. And while you have heard me predict that the jam they have gotten into here is the result of their own behavior and God's punishment, let's leave aside for a minute whether we believe that that's how God operates and say that in the Hebrew Bible he does, that we are going to see that God is not finished with us and that God's relationship continues and that God's faithfulness continues in the midst of our waywardness and there is going to be restoration. There is going to be return. The followers of Jesus in the New Testament are going to read texts like this from their sacred literature and they're going to say that in Jesus we have seen the culmination of the return from exile. It has now come to completeness. So Jeremiah says, this piece of property is my sign of hopefulness for the future. So if you were to read this and to meditate on this reading, you might ask yourself, how in the midst... Remember that the principal focus of the prophets of Israel uh, are, is, is not personal. All of us tend to think in the, in the age that we have for the last 300 years tend to think about everything in terms of me, my spirituality, my understanding of what God's doing in my life, and so forth. <coughs> Jeremiah would have thought that second at the very least and would have said, I'm talking about the corporate understanding of what we mean here as a people. And how do we understand a kind of collective um, uh, optimism for the future? Or are we going to be now carried away in the negativity and the difficulty? We're living in a particular period in history now just like that, where it's easy to say, how do we think about the future? Because the future doesn't look too bright at this point, and it may not for the next three or four years in this country. And so we have to say to ourselves, well, you know, is there anything that we can do to model a kind of hopeful demeanor in the wider society? What is it that we ought to be for? How is it that we ought to see affirmatively what it is that we have as a people and focus on those kinds of things? You know, there's a management tool that's very popular these days called um, appreciative inquiry. And people come to companies and they come to places and they say, all right, we're not going to start with the problem. We're going to start with what you're doing well. And so let's talk about that and move from that to how we now uh, deal with the challenges. You know, I can remember this in this diocese when we had an unhappy separation from the former bishop and you'd have meetings where people would be sitting at tables like this and they'd start to talk about the problem. 
and we'd have an hour and a half on the problem, and then the question would be, what kind of a bishop do you want to have? Well, can you see, can you, you could get the answer for easy. So Jeremiah's hopeful gesture is a reminder that perhaps we need to find the ways and the means to do that. When I mentioned that Jeremiah's focus was principally corporate and not personal and individual, that was not an either-or comment because you and I need to use and understand uh, our own personal spiritual condition as an instrument of um, moving people forward in relationships. And you hear me say every day in this sermon this way, you know, you have a, God has a plan for you in, the, in, in, in his plan for the cosmos, a purpose. And we believe that with all our heart. At whatever point we find ourselves in a prosperous or non-prosperous circumstance, that is true. And in a sense, this is what Jeremiah affirms today, not just the woe is me here. He's got some property for the future, and he's going to get taken off to Babylon, and he's going to be imprisoned in the king's palace or one of the, for a period of time, because he had announced in advance that this would happen. So they wanted him out of the way. Today in 1 Timothy, let me say again, remember I've, I've mentioned to you all this issue about Pauline authorship of the, of the letters that are attributed to Paul. First and Second Timothy um, are uh, probably Deutero-Pauline, and that means that they were written by a disciple of Paul who knew his theology inside out. And one of the benefits of understanding this kind of scholarship is not from the standpoint of debunking, but an affirmation of the continuity of Paul's theology within the community of faith after Paul. So that means that the community that this letter to Timothy was written to were struggling with some issues on the ground. If Paul wrote the letter, it would have been the same issues, but perhaps in the development of the church's life together, these things are now standing out in greater relief. And one of them was there were a number of prosperous members of the community who began to have their head turned because of their prosperity, <clears throat> whose uh, accumulation of great riches uh, left out the possibility of extension and generosity, and that they were in a condition of perpetual restlessness. St. Augustine speaks about the human condition and refers to human <clears throat> beings as concupiscent, restless, discontent, you know? I heard a guy say once, I think all of my problems will be solved if I could have a navy blue Lexus. I've been thinking this. You know, if I, it would be, it would help me, right? Maybe so. But if you spend a lot of time and energy on that, you don't have it for other things perhaps more productive and more godly. Paul speaks today about contentment. Being content. <clears throat> and contentment is not something that is, appears to be a high value in our age, maybe not in any age. You know, your people... 
something's missing. They haven't got the whole thing. So they are restless. Um, contentment is a is a spiritual quality that um, can also be defined in a way that may sound negative to you all, and that's resignation. Resignation doesn't mean acceptance in a, in the sense of I'm resigned to any circumstance. But it does mean a sense of uh, being in the place that you're in and being able now to move in a direction as the result of uh, stilling that sense of restlessness, being centered in God. So Paul speaks today about something called godliness. Some biblical scholars believe that the middle part of the reading that you heard is actually a early liturgical piece of material at an ordination. So, to the godly man, it says in the, you know, so someone who is about to be uh, ordained is now told in this passage how they're supposed to live as a model for the people they serve. Let me stop there before, because this is where godliness is mentioned, and say to you, for 40 years in the Episcopal Church, we have been laboring to, uh, not just to introduce, but to live something known as a baptismal ecclesiology, which means that all of us have been ordained through our baptism. Some people are called to the ordained ministry, but they do not constitute a separate caste, C-A-S-T-E, that eats the sins of everybody else and lets people off the hook and have to live some heroic life that everybody else does not have to live, right? So these words in the New Testament church were probably addressed, maybe if it was an ordination liturgy, to somebody called to the ordained ministry, but by extension through baptism was for everyone to hear. When Paul speaks today of godliness, in the Greek text he uses the word eusebia, which, which is normally translated in, from the Greek as piety. But its better translation is religious. And I make a point of this because we're living in an age where people will say to you, if, as a member of the clergy, I have heard in the last 15 years this once, I've heard it a gazillion times, I'm spiritual but not religious. <laughs> Religion is a set of beliefs and practices. I read a very interesting scholarly article this week. You'll be hearing, well, no, here he goes again on that, uh, called Spiritual But Not Religious by Owen Thomas. And he speaks of how this has emerged out of the new Romantic movement, just as the old Romantic movement, Goethe and, you know, that gang, all talked about spirituality as opposed to religion. Religion. 
So Paul's use of eusebia is a timely one because godliness may have something to do both with beliefs and practices and not just feeling. That it combines the full range of the way in which human beings come to reality, which is thinking and feeling, right? We've talked about this before. The newest research on the brain says that our nervous system means that thinking and feeling are simultaneous. So you need to do both. And feeling sometimes merely is the reversion to the reptilian brain. We need to think about what we feel and vice versa. And mo a lot of times we use feeling when we mean thinking too. I'm feeling I feel like X when you think that, but you call it feeling, right? In any case, Paul is speaking about godliness as a way of uh, cultivating practices, which are habits of being and relating. And so he describes uh, in 1 Timothy how we ought to relate to those things that we have and what we ought to do. And he then says at the end, those who are rich need to be concerned about how they use their resources in a way that is godly, that in some ways is a reflection of the generous spirit. So it's a good reading from that standpoint. In the ancient Near East, there appears to be a few that have been discovered, stories like Dives and Lazarus. In other words, it's a kind of a, a folk tale. And this is a, a story clearly that, you know, your behavior now has effects in the future. Christian people, some, we have, I think, spent too much time in Christianity um, scaring people about their behavior now, uh, putting them in bad odor, or, or putting into jeopardy their post-mortem bliss, right? In one sense, that's a separate conversation. This is about somebody, Dives, who has absolutely no self-knowledge of any kind, and who has the, the, the mistaken idea that, oh, if only he hit, he didn't say it here, but uh, if you go tell my five brothers, they'll get it, and they won't do this, right? Just, to, just to, re to remind ourselves, Dives, rich man, uh, ate sumptuously every day, and Lazarus, who was wretched, uh, was waiting just to get the, the what was left over from the meal. The dogs licked his sores. To hear that in the ancient Near East, particularly if you were a, a Jew, would have been horrific. And he um, received no benefits. So when he dies, Lazarus goes to heaven for all intents and purposes. And he is in the bosom of Abraham. I told you that story a couple of times about that some historian wrote about Queen Victoria riding in her carriage with one of her ladies-in-waiting. And her lady-in-waiting turns to her in the carriage and says, Oh, ma'am. Isn't a great comfort to know that when we die and go to God, we shall be in the bosom 
of Abraham. And Queen Victoria straightens up in the carriage and said, I will not be in the bosom of Abraham. <laughs> Doesn't sound too comforting for everybody, I guess, right? But anyway, he's with the great patriarch and dives is over uh, in torment. So he says, not putting, not feeling sorry for, for what, what he did, just says, would you send Lazarus over here, dip his finger in some water and just put it on my tongue, I'm in agony over here. <laughs> and you know what Abraham says to him? It's not possible because between us a great chasm has been fixed. You know, you could understand this separation uh, as a kind of uh, metaphor for when we simply have no self-knowledge of any kind, the distance between uh, reality and us is very, very far. So he said, well, if I can't, he can't get over here and I can't get over there, uh, would you go and warn my brothers? And Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. If they haven't listened to them, they're not going to listen to me. The ministry of Jesus was about him speaking about Moses and the prophets, and people didn't listen to him either. That's why it concludes with, how are they going to believe me if they don't believe somebody who rose from the dead? They don't believe that either. So the question is, how do we understand in some way that our uh, ability to get clarity about who we are and what our circumstances are is a very important thing. I suspect for Luke, uh, the community that he was in, I mentioned this last week, I think Luke was, was in a Gentile Christian community of prosperous people, relatively prosperous people. The classes were all different in those days. There was sort of one, uh, one and then a little bit of this. But there were people in this that were kind of at the higher end, you know, doctors like Luke and other people. And so some of them, again, lost sight of uh, what they were supposed to be doing. Or they were, not, they were not sure about how to use their possessions. They were not sure about what this involved, you know. So Dives is an, a gross example used on purpose of somebody who is completely self-indulgent and has no understanding of uh, anybody who's in circumstances different than his own. You know, all of us have met people like this, so we know about what it is. And what one commentator said when I was writing my sermon, uh, Every, anyone who embraces a material goods as the primary interest of one's life is a base and flagrant dismissal of scriptural command and precedent. The end of such a life is fairly predictable. So the audience would have heard this read to them and said, you know, 
Well, it figures this is the jam that dives would be in. And it's a cautionary tale for all of us. So I guess the lesson this week would be to give thanks for a God who's never through with you and who always knows that you have a future with regard to God's purposes for the cosmos. Give thanks for the opportunity to get greater clarity about um, contentment and restlessness. And finally know that you need to listen and pay attention and that you're not going to get outside help always to figure it out. Amen. Amen.